Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet and I'm here with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It's good. Busy, busy little bee over here, I am. So guess what, Rachel? Uh, you and I kind of sleep on this sometimes because um, we often record banters maybe a week or two, the, the little segment before the interview, uh, a week or two, or sometimes even three weeks before the actual episode plays. Um, and so sometimes it's hard to kind of schedule things, uh, especially milestones that have happened. But I did happen to notice that we have surpassed 100 episodes. Did you see that? No. <laughs> I had no idea where you were going with this. I was like, what's, what's he about to say? Oh my gosh, this is so exciting. Yeah, I recognized about an episode or two or maybe three episodes ago, a couple episodes ago is when we passed 100 episodes, which is quite a milestone, I think. It's really interesting to think that we started this podcast. It's almost two years, actually, we've been doing this podcast. That's another milestone. So in November will be our two-year anniversary. So that's another thing. I know. And to think about how much it's grown. I remember two years ago when Asha was in Los Angeles... Lucas and I walking around, we had just started the podcast. We only had a few interviews and we were trying to get people to come on the podcast, which is so funny now because I feel like now you guys just send us emails with people to interview and ideas. And it's just really cool to see how it's all unfolded. Now, speaking of, of stuff that's going on, so one of our most uh, recent episodes was uh, an episode that talked about aggressive behaviors. You kind of opened up and explained uh, a story that had happened to you, uh, and we kind of talked about it here on the podcast. And since then, a lot of people have reached out. Is that, is that a fair statement? Chris, you would not believe how many people have messaged me. And I... It's I've been flooded with love and support and emails saying people not only, you know, their hearts go out to me, but they completely understand similar things happen to them. And so it's just been really wonderful to see everybody who has sent me messages and reached out on social media. I mean, I've gotten so many emails and it's been really wonderful to not feel so alone. And I have to be honest, I had like this pit in my stomach the day that that episode aired because I just felt like it was so raw and real and I was very vulnerable in talking about that. And so I'm just happy that it ended up really helping, it sounds like, a lot of our listeners. And it was just a constant reminder that we're not alone and we all experiencing these things and we all have self-doubt. And at the end of the day, it's, it's important to talk about these things. It's important to say it out loud because then you realize, you know, I'm not the only one who feels this way. So, yeah, I think a lot of people empathized with the, with that because the profession is very caring and giving and you give a lot of yourself. And so, I don't know, it, it, it seemed to touch a lot of people. Yeah, it did. And just a quick update on the situation because, yes, exactly. you know, it's not just a podcast episode. It's like my real life. The situation has unfolded in a way that has been beautiful. I have transitioned some of my clients to more of a consultation, parent coaching model. And it's actually been really wonderful because I think at the end of the day, that's where I can be the most value to a family is to really help them troubleshoot, to teach them the concepts. 
Um, and so it's something that I kind of had this nagging feeling that was kind of eating away at me anyway, because I felt like I wasn't utilizing myself in the best capacity for these families. And so actually, I've had a lot of really great meetings since then. And I feel really good and inspired about how I can help in a way that I feel good about and families feel good about. My biggest concern was that families would feel disappointed and let down. And I never want to feel like I've let somebody down. And, you know, we talked about on the episode how it's, that was one of the emotions that was driving a lot of you know, my feelings regarding this, because I felt like there's so many clinicians that give up on these families. And, and I can understand that from the clinician perspective, right? It's hard work. But how can we figure out a way to still support while also kind of preserving ourselves and our energy and, you know, our physical beings? Um, So it's been, it's been really good. And I feel really good about kind of how everything has unfolded since then. And luckily, I don't think I've disappointed anybody. So are you still working with the family then? Yes. You just changed how you're working with the family. Yes. And again, I work, I typically, this is typically what I do, right? Typically what I do is kind of coaching and going to schools and all these things. It's just a lot of times people get my name and they, they think, well, we want Rachel to work with our son or our daughter. And I have said yes to that, knowing that eventually I do want to kind of transition them to more consultation coaching. But I think I just kind of let it go on for a little bit too long. And um, anyway. Maybe it's even reframing the questions. So when someone comes and says, I want to work with, I want Rachel Madel to work with my son or daughter. Really, it's, I want Rachel Madel to work with us. Right? Yes. yes. Uh, because you said no matter how much time you have, it's it's, it's a, a, a small fraction compared to what the parents will have and the other support personnel surrounding that student. So uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And I think that it's just, that's a typical speech therapy model, right? Is to come every week to an office. And so that's what most people are used to, but I don't do things the way that most people do them. Um, and, you know, I'm very clear with that with families um, in the initial stages. But I think sometimes I need, I actually do need to work closely with a student while I'm trialing and kind of figuring out a student before I can be of most value. And so it's trying to figure out, like, how can I learn about the student, trial some technology, figure out where we need to start, all in the same process as, you know, having clients, because it's, it's hard to kind of manage it all. My time's really slim. And so I think it's just, it's easy to kind of fill people into the slots of my office, but I don't think it's actually the best practice. And so I've been trying to figure out how can I, how can I figure out my schedule so that I'm able to go do a home visit and a school visit and all these things, at least initially, so that I'm able to then maybe transition to more telepractice, coaching, consulting, things like that. Um, so it's just been kind of trying to figure it all out. Hey, I could save you a lot of money, Rachel. How, Chris? You know I love saving money. Here's, here's how you do it. Just get rid of the office. Work <laughs> out of your car. Drive from place to place. Don't pay rent anymore for the office space. I do feel like that is, I'm joking, of course, but really, could you see someday down the line where that doesn't need to happen anymore? That you don't need to have a place for people to come? Or do you feel like, no, you still need it for some, some certain times or certain activities? Well, you know what it is. It's 
it's it's a few things. It's Los Angeles is not mm. the place that you can be in a car. It's just, it's so hard to get from one place to the other. And so I was finding, because that's how I started my practice. I started my practice only doing home visits, only going to schools. I didn't have an office. And the reason I ended up getting one was because one, I was super burnt out from all of the traffic and all of the sitting. And, you know, I, I feel like I was perpetually late, which is never a good feeling. And especially because I'm pretty punctual. So it was like, there were these things outside of my control that were impeding my ability to be on time and, you know, all those things. But also I just wasn't able to see as many kids. And so I'm really able to maximize my time. So it's this balancing act, right? Like I need to be able to maximize my time, but also I need to integrate into a home environment, into a school environment, which I've always done. Um, you know, and it depends on the, on the student and their, you know, what we're working on and things like that. There's so many things that go into that decision, but yeah, I mean, I only have office hours Tuesdays and Thursdays, so I'm not in my office every day, um, for that specific reason, but it's just, it's this balancing act. Well, you heard it here first, folks. We know what we need to get Rachel for for, for the holidays or for her birthday. Uh, it's going to be a helicopter. We're going to get you a helicopter to fly around LA. I would love that. I need a helicopter. Actually, I thought of hiring a driver. I mean, I, I really have because I was like, I feel like I could sit in the back seat of my car and work yeah. while somebody else drives me around. <laughs> Yeah, right? Like a Lyft or an Uber or something like that? Yeah. Or just someone who always knows, like, oh, I'm picking up Rachel today. And right. Just like hiring somebody to just, and they, they could just sit there while I'm in my sessions, you know? It's really yes. just they have to drive me around and they have to deal with LA traffic. Yes, yes. Or a jetpack. I mean, that could be fun too. A jetpack. Or a teleporter, you know? <laughs> yes. How can I get around LA without a car? <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in all seriousness, you did mention that uh, you have picked up with more telepractice as well. Is that accurate? So you might be doing more consulting via like we are right now, so sort of a video conferencing tool? Yeah, and it's been so effective. It's really interesting because a lot of what I do is I troubleshoot, right? A lot of the families that are contacting me, this, this ain't their first rodeo as far as speech is concerned. They've had tons of speech therapists, tons of different people giving them advice. And so I really dive in and I say, okay, what's working? What's not working? How can we make those things work? You know, and of course, bringing in the knowledge that I have of AAC and technology and autism and all these things that I have learned over the years. But it's actually really interesting how I can help from afar. I have lots of clients in um, not just California, but I've worked with people over the world. And it's really great because I feel like I actually can help guide and coach them, um, teach them what I know about vocabulary and how to be strategic, give them ideas on how to implement. You know, It's the same types of coaching procedures that I would go through with families that I work with in real life, um, you know, in person. But it's been interesting. I also have been using video modeling as a way to kind of look back and coach caregivers on you like see right there like you know what could we have done in that situation like what would you have done next time and they're like oh like I should have paused more free you should have paused more you know and so things like that it's so cool how we can use technology to help support a process like that 
Well, and you just touched upon it, the difference between coaching and consulting, right? When you, when you ask people questions and they reflect upon that and they have the, the video right there that they're watching together with you, that's like true coaching because it's, it's, it's letting people um, f- discover what they should do from the, in, from the inside. Where consulting, you'd be like, okay, here's what you do. You need to expand right now. This is how you do an expansion or something like that. Mm-hmm. I actually was doing a coaching session with a family last week. And the mom was so wonderful. She was completely honest. She's like, I haven't touched the device (laughs) all month since we saw you last. I have not touched the device. I found out you were coming this week and I started getting frantic. Like, oh no, I haven't done any of my homework. (laughs) And one, I appreciated her honesty, right? Because it's like, I'm not here to be like, you know, the mean school teacher that's like, you didn't do your homework, you're in trouble. I'm here to help figure out how can we do better next month? You know, and so it was interesting because one of the things that she said to me was, I realized that, you know, we had talked about potentially using a device at mealtime. And she said, I realized when all the other kids are around, it's not the best time for me to use the device. I'm too overwhelmed. Too many things are happening. It needs to be when I have one-on-one time with my son. And I said, great. Like, what is one time of day or time of week that you have one-on-one time with him? And she's like, every Saturday, we go to the beach in the morning really early. And I said, perfect. She's like, I've thought about the device, though. It's not like the best for the beach. It's like, we can, we don't even need to take the device to the beach, but we need to talk about going to the beach before we go. We need to talk about going to the car before we go. We need to talk about going to the grocery store after the beach. We need to talk about going home. I was like, you can keep the device in the car if you want to, but like, there's so many opportunities to talk about where you're going. And she's like, oh, great. She's like, I can start it tomorrow. And so anyway, I I wanted to share that story because it was really great that she had the insight to figure out what we decided on last month. It's not working for me. And here's why. That's awesome. That is so awesome that she can now move from where she was to where she needs to be, right? So she was at zero and now she's at one and can she continue to move on? So that's fantastic. Yeah, I know. I I felt really good after the session. And it's like things like that, where it feels very rewarding to be able to help guide the process, right? Like, it's not like you said, me coming in and being like, do this, right? It's like brainstorming, it's troubleshooting. It's like, well, do you think this might work for you? Um, And of course, it's using routines based intervention to figure out how can I integrate into an already existing routine, because that's how we know it's more likely to stick. So Rachel, back to the, the aggressive behaviors episode for, for a second. A lot of people reached out. There was a lot of activity on the Facebook group. If you have not been to the Facebook group, we suggest you head over there because there is uh, people sharing their story and their own experiences and their own perspectives. And, uh, and a lot of people were commenting on that episode in particular. Yeah. And I, again, I just want to thank everybody who listened and everybody who reached out. Um, it really touched my heart in a special way and we aren't alone. And I think that's one of the great things about this podcast is that while we might be in a school and, you know, kind of doing our own thing, not interacting with a lot of SLPs, our hope for this podcast is that it's a place where we can all come together and share experiences. Um, and so there's no better place to do that than our Facebook group. So definitely join it if you haven't already. It's a really great place. And again, thank you guys so much for all the support. I felt so loved and I just don't feel alone, which is one of the best feelings in the world. Now, you also were not alone when you did this interview today. So who's the interview with today? 
So I had the pleasure of interviewing Lisa Irwin Davidson. She is doing really amazing research. She's local to California, and um, she was connected to me through uh, one of my local reps. And what an amazing experience. This interview was really great. She shared so much insight into AAC and all the work that she's doing as far as research. Um, so I'm really excited to, to share the interview with you guys. Um, she had a lot of really great strategies that he, she uses and just per, her perspectives were really spot on. So without further ado, let's listen to Rachel's interview with Lisa Irwin Davidson. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Lisa Irwin-Davidson. Lisa, how are you? I'm fine. It's great to be here. I am so excited to have you on our podcast and talk to you all about the work that you're doing. So just start off by introducing yourself to our listeners sure. and sure. telling us a little bit about what you do and how you started doing what you do. Uh, started doing what I do. Well, I, I can tell you, and this may, this may age uh, me a little bit, but I was at the forefront of AEC starting in 1984. So when the International Society for Augmentative and Alternative Communication was going, when uh, USAC wasn't even uh, going at that point, it was when I jumped in, thanks to a, a wonderful mentor that I had out in Syracuse, uh, New York. So uh, I had the pleasure and privilege of doing an internship project with Dr. Bruce Baker um, at the time when semantic compaction was just coming to the fore and speech generating devices were becoming, uh, I guess, invented. They were starting to figure out how do we implement these devices with uh, a type of semantic compaction system or with symbols that would allow the person to communicate more efficiently and not just to communicate, but also to learn to learn language and to be literate. And so they that experience uh, at that cere cerebral palsy center really um, struck a chord with me. And even being able to sit with occupational therapists and physical therapists and working with two-year-olds all the way up to adults sort of set the tone for how I wanted to proceed with the rest of my career. I love that. And so um, it's, it's really I love having clinicians on who have, and researchers who have a, a lot of experience. They kind of have seen the evolution of AAC and our field. Um, what do you think is one of the, is, is there anything that has changed for the best? Is there anything that you, you know, kind of wish we could kind of go back and, and do a little bit differently? What is your perspective on that kind of evolution of this field? That's a huge question, Rachel. That's a huge question. Um, I, I'll say that some of the positives that I've seen over the last 30 years are the ability or that the insurance companies are more likely to pay for uh, speech generating devices than they had when we first started. I mean, our first uh, struggles with insurance companies and Medicaid was really in the mid to late 80s, all the way into the 90s. Um, you know, Lou Golinker, who's a huge uh, an attorney to help uh, work with insurance companies and Medicaid to make sure that our devices were, were legally covered, uh, made a huge difference in our field. So I think even though we all have complaints and there are always issues around getting devices approved, we now have vendors who can help us through these device evaluations and who dot all the I's and cross all the T's to help clinicians out there to get their clients the devices that they need. So that, that's been a big piece. 
Yeah, and that I think a lot of ways these companies have made it very easy, right? They kind of have been through, you know, they know all the insurance companies, they know all the like hoops that they have to jump through. They know, uh, you know, if a if it's going to be denied, you know, why and how to respond to that, you know. So it's just they they have kind of taken probably a lot of the legwork out of it, um, which is nice because we want our clients to get devices and we want them to get them funded. Right, and and, and also from what I'm hearing from the graduate students that it it actually eases some of their anxiety around thinking, oh gosh, I'm the only one that's has to do this, or I don't have any help, or where am I supposed to start? And I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing for my client. And I think that hearing that the vendors um, are available and more than willing to help out speech language pathologists in their evaluations has been huge for this field. Yeah, and it's more of a collaboration, right? I think it's a lot of weight to put on a clinician's back. You know, you have to do this intense assessment and figure out what's the right system and how to implement it and how to program it and all these things when we know there's a lot of different technologies out there now, you know, new AAC technologies are coming out. Every time I go to a different conference, I see a new booth with somebody else starting an app or have mm-hmm. some type of, uh, you know, technology. And so it's kind of hard to keep up in a lot of ways. Um, and so it's nice to, to, to ease that burden a little bit. It's not, you know, just me making a decision, it should be a team approach. Yeah. And I think, uh, so you, the other question you asked was, what are some of the, um, the problems that continue to exist or rear their ugly heads? And I would say that probably the barriers uh, still exist, and, and in particular, the practice barriers. You know, um, if you're working in a school and you're a school speech language pathologist and you have done, uh, and you know your client really well and know that they could benefit from a speech generating device, you know, how do you overcome the barrier to uh, making sh- to getting the evaluation done, and 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 then how long you may have to wait for that child, that student, to actually get a, a device in their hands? And you know, where I, I would say that these systemic barriers are one of the most problematic components of AAC that continue to exist. And I, you know, the second uh, barrier that I that I see, which may work out in the long run, but there's this uh, sort of a controversy, I think, right now in the field of AAC around how children learn language and how are we going to approach the instruction of language using graphic symbols and what is the best way to go about it. You know, and you may have been following the AAC for the SLP that's actually administered by um, my friend Catherine Dorney. Hey, Catherine. Um, But yeah, I think that's been quite evident when you look through the threads at how there's just this discussion, this argument over what is the best way that these children with complex communication needs should be learning language. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, you know, something that's uh, very important for research. You know, we need to know what are those components for teaching language? You know, if we're going to do aided language input or aided language modeling, how does that occur? And what is your what is your underlying philosophy? What is your underlying epistemology that leads you down that path to that more socially constructed approach, where if you uh, sort of adhere to more of the behavioral approach, you know, your, your way that you're going to be teaching that child to learn those graphic symbols may be entirely different. So, you know, learning language and learning behaviors is, is different. It's, it's different. So we have to come to a, a continued agreement or discussion about how we're going to do this right for our clients, especially for our school age kids. 
No, absolutely. And I, I'm in that Facebook group and there's a lot of heated discussions oftentimes. And, you know, when you go through and Mm -hmm. you read through those discussions, you just can see how people are coming from completely different theoretical models, right. Of language development. Um, And so I think that it's important to learn more about that. We know we don't have enough research in those areas. Um, I'm really interested in autism. Um, We just had uh, Charlotte DiStefano on. She's a UCLA researcher. And she was talking about, you know, a lot of her passion and her research is geared towards how children with autism learn language because it's not, you know, a typical process. We're finding that, you know, the way children with autism learn language is completely different than children who are language delayed or children with other diagnoses. And so, you know, there's all these kind of nuanced implications that we need to kind of sort through. Um, and I think we probably both can, can agree we need more research. Right. And that, and that's actually the reason I went into this whole thing, because after practicing for so many years, you know, I collected a lot of questions, right? Things that I wanted to investigate. And um, it came to the point where I was um, lucky enough to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and, and study under a person I've admired for years and name's Dr. Karen Erickson. And uh, that was uh, a really good way to I guess, develop my questions and to make sure that I was very focused and to really have the opportunity and the time to hone those questions to some of those pieces that uh, are really um, important for the field. So, you know, you can be overwhelmed because there are so many questions like it. You can just do this for the, for the rest of your life. Um, but where I had seen some difficulties was the AEC implementation in special education schools or in self-contained classrooms versus what it was like in inclusive classrooms. So I was looking at, you know, how the teacher's instruction changes when they are learning a different uh, communication system. Uh, I was really interested in how children with complex communication needs learn core concept words that uh, when they have very complicated bodies and may never have learned to reach or grasp and manipulate things or move around their environment. And that made me sort of dig into the research in occupational science and learned a lot about how they view children's engagement with the world and engagement with objects when they have these complex bodies. And so there's, you know, interesting theoretical bases for these. uh, And that's, what I want to do is to sort of take a step back and go to where children with complex communication needs are beginning to learn language. Where is one of the first place and what is that age where they should be really um, enacting those very, very early concepts that they might have learned or, or, or comprehended earlier, but how are they going to express it? And where, and where do they express it? And so this led me to the, the preschool age because children between three and five they're going to be in these classrooms and experiencing um, communication with their peers and going to be involved in, in um, instructional routines and learning basic concepts and the words to talk about them is a huge component of any preschool curricula. So, you know, the one state in the country that um, has universal preschool is Vermont. And so my dissertation was studying four uh, preschool classrooms that are um, that accept children with disabilities uh, from their community and they've been included they've been doing that since 2014 and to look at how high quality preschools and, and and exemplary teachers how do they teach concepts 
these core concepts to children with and without complex communication needs. Do they do something different? How do they, how do they um, teach concepts if some of the children in the class don't have speech and don't have graphic representation for language? Mm-hmm. And so to me, that was a, that was a place to really um, to look at the origin and then to take that information um, into other age groups later on. You make a really, um, a really great point uh, Lisa, I'm thinking about multimodality learning, right? We know that children learn when they're engaging all of their senses and their bodies and, you know, children with complex communication needs, like you said, they have complex bodies oftentimes that, you know, they can't manipulate objects, they can't move around a classroom. Um, and so it's really interesting to think about, you know, how does that impact a child's ability to, you know, start utilizing language, especially if they, they have no expressive language. Um, and so it's just interesting how that manifests. Um, was there any, you know, indications that you found of, you know, how this, this kind of unfolds in classrooms and with children? Yeah. Yeah, it was actually really interesting because, um, well, just to take a little step back first, I had done a, a year-long qualitative uh, research study, was called an intrinsic case study, in a self-contained classroom for uh, with my research team at CLDS for about eight months. So I had that information and how the classroom context changed, how instructional uh, instructional style of the teacher changed when you introduce core concept words, a core core vocabulary, right? Called the universal core. So then I wanted to say, okay, I know about what's happening in this type of environment, so let me take it into an inclusive classroom and see how, if, if there are any differences, how does, how do concepts develop in, in these inclusive classrooms when you have a lot of speech going around and the, and the teachers are qualified to go back and forth between kids with disabilities and not. So how do they teach these concepts? So what was really interesting is I compared four different classrooms and I was in there for a prolonged period of times. So it was a, a, a 12 week study and it was a cross case analysis, um, look, which was exploratory. So again, asking the question, how are these children learning in these naturalistic environments? How do they learn these, these basic concept words? And what I did find, you know, one of the takeaways was that if a teacher understood about uh, how to how to instruct one and from a socially constructed standpoint that she understood the inter- an interactional framework that she came from a dynamic frame of learning that she really got Vygotsky right that she really got experiential learning that that teacher would be able to infuse the graphic symbols and the graphic language into all of her routines, into all of her instructions, and did what she could to teach the child with complex communication needs these basic concept words. But number one, to do that, the child had to have an aided language system. The children who had core concept words and not a lot of nouns on their communication systems, but the words that would allow them to cross-contextually communicate. So these are not context-constrained words. They were the ones that became symbolic, emerging symbolic communicators. They were the ones who, some of them actually started to speak. They were the ones who were very uh, communicative with their peers and were able to 
demonstrate that they understood some of these core concepts. So in particular, there's this group or this subgroup of basic concepts, and they're called conceptual relational words. And these conceptual relational words are these, create these semantic link, linkages when, uh, be, between nouns. So you think of these words, the, I call them CRWs, but they're the glue words between nouns. And there's five types of them. Um, and I'll give you an example. One, uh, are, they're called uh, spatial relational, conceptual relational words. So spatial relational words. And these are words like in and out, up and down, and even here and there. What I found was that both children with and without complex communication needs used these CRWs extensively throughout their day. And in certain activities that involved very flexible thinking and flexible learning, like, like uh, playing with water and ex experimenting and exploring how different um, objects and, and sand, things that are very flexible, that you have to use, you have to be able to understand and use these core spatial relational concepts. And if they weren't able to say them, at least they had opportunities to understand them. Right, And so these were very powerful activities for teachers and speech pathologists and occupational therapists to work together to teach all the children these core concept words that have to do with spatial relationships. So it's taking our thinking, it's thinking differently about how we approach the language, it's taking it away from a grammatical function and putting it into more of a, a cognitive and sensory motor thinking, you know, what are these relational words that, uh, that give the child an understanding and a power to talk about how words that match how their body moves. So the mm -hmm. children were learning these words in the ways that their body experienced the world. That's amazing. What you're saying makes total sense to me because I feel like you know, we obviously know the importance of core words and how those concepts, you know, we need to show kids how to use them multiple times through lots of experiences in order for it to solidify. Um, you know, but uh, the other thing is it's, it's really great as a way to direct the actions of others, right? So like being able to say in and seeing somebody put something in, you know, you might not be able to physically do that with your own body, but having the power to access a communication you know, system that allows you to say that is really motivating for kids, you know, for kids who don't always have, you know, fine motor control or even gross motor control sometimes. Um, I think that's a really powerful thing. Right. And I think um, for clinicians, I mean, there's so many different things I could say about the study that were just, um, well, they were interesting to me anyway, but I, you know, for, for when I think about uh, what clinicians can do when, when they go out into the field is to really pay close attention to how children's bodies move and how they're interacting with the objects in their physical world and to match what their bodies are able to do with these particular concepts. So these may be um, attributive relational words, you know, like the shape, the size, uh, the weight, the quantity of things. Um, uh, for example, words like same and different or some and all, right? That's extremely important for these children who may not be able to see patterns. They may not be able to hear other kids talking about the differences between objects. And 
they may only learn same and different from being able to manipulate them and having somebody attribute that communicative meaning to these object differences. So whatever their bodies can do, pay attention to it because the concepts are, are taught by what, how their bodies interact with these physical objects. And you know, we know some of these kids in preschool, right? They can't reach yet. They can't grasp, they're too involved. So what can you do to teach the concepts of same and different, which are really, really learned early mm -hmm. um, with children who have these complex bodies and to think about, wow, this is a really important concept to teach, but how am I gonna teach this given what their body can or can't do? And I think an additional layer too is that for a classroom teacher, especially, or you know, clinicians who are doing push-in therapy or group therapy, how can we kind of, you know, both teach an entire classroom, but also hone in on individual students to kind of help individualize? Um, and I think that's one of the 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 hardest things about you know classrooms where there's children with lots of different varying skill levels. Um, and so it's kind of figuring out a way to both individualize, but also integrate into a group lesson, for example. Yeah, one, one of the things that one particular teacher did, which was, I thought, pretty powerful, is that she um, had downloaded a, a 36 universal core board. And for one student who'd come in who was completely, who was pre-symbolic, he was suspected of being on the autism spectrum, um, had all sort of your typical behaviors, wasn't showing that he was even aware of children in his environment. And she didn't know all the details about how to do aided language modeling, but she knew enough where she copied off that board and she just started modeling in the way that she knew how. And she taught her instructional assistant how to do it. And then she made numerous copies for all the children in the classroom. What she made clear to all her students is that I don't care how you voice or what your voice is, everybody has a different voice. And so just from the way that she presented this, uh, a, this aided AEC system and then how she used it in all her settings, it didn't matter. All the children had equal access to these concept words and all of them are participating in helping this little boy learn the, the underlying words you know, underneath these these graphic symbols. So the graphic symbol is just like a visual perceptual characteristic, right? It's the important thing is the word that underlies that graphic symbol. And to make sure that word is is not contextually constrained. That word can be used across many, many situations and environments. And that's indeed the power that this teacher had. She knew that. She, even though like I was this was not an intervention study, right? I was just watching her to see what, what played out. But just by her doing that, that student began to speak words and began to independently use his universal core board within two weeks, within two weeks. Wow. Because look at the massive amount of input that he had available, right? So mm -hmm. the special educator had come in and she sometimes used the board in her individual sessions. There was a speech aide in the room who was using that board a lot across different contexts that all the kids were involved in. But I think the most powerful thing is, is that the teachers, right, the classroom teachers were modeling and allowing the children in the classroom to model these words too. And the kids picked up on it unbelievably. Exactly. And we know the power of peers, right? It's like, I tell this to clinicians all the time. It's just like, you know, we can never teach as well as a peer can teach. And so it's so amazing to hear that these special educators understand the importance of that and incorporate their entire classroom in. Um, not only does I, do I think that helps with children progressing 
you know, as far as their speech and language and their, um, you know, communication. But I also think just from a social standpoint, from a peer acceptance standpoint, um, it kind of levels the playing field, right? And it's just, it's really important because, um, you know, I've been in those classrooms where, you know, the child who's using a device is the child who's using a device. You know, it's not, it's not integrated, you know, and, and a lot of times we're not even having conversations with the entire classroom about how the student is using a device. Um, you know, I sit at circle time, especially with those preschoolers and like all the little preschoolers come over and start touching the device because they're used to seeing an iPad, you know, at home or what have you. Um, and so it's just important to, to think through that lens and just get the entire classroom involved. Right. And what I found, and it's not just what I found, but the, I think the entire team of the Center for Literacy and Disability Studies, I mean, they're doing such groundbreaking work in implementation science right now, but, um, and I'm sure they're going to be at ASHA and talk about some of their um, more current results. But I, I think what we all sort of agreed with was that it's, it's the word that's on that device that carries the meaning, right? The most important thing about these devices is, is what words you have in these device. And as speech pathologists, I think we've done a disservice uh, when it comes to implementing communication devices in the classroom because we use a lot of lingo that we're not even, that we don't even know that we're doing. And, and this was a big thing I learned in, in, in the graduate program was, you know, whoa, 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 Lisa, you're still using a lot of this like SLP lingo stuff. and. When I began to adopt the language of the classroom teachers, so example will be using, uh, talk about words and how children learn words versus, well, I'm gonna develop this vocabulary for this particular thing. It started to really resonate, you know, with some of the teachers. And um, when I went back and, and t- taught the, the preschool teachers that I'd done my study with, and this part of my dissemination, they had, the teachers had really good questions. And they hadn't realized that these communication systems carried the power of words. Now you think that's sort of intuitive in in our world, right? But there was a lot of confusion between the pictures on visual supports for self-regulation and behavior management and the pictures used for language development and, and facilitating communication. And that was one of the takeaways too, is that the teachers were almost like, blown away by, oh my gosh, you know, I never really thought about that. It's, it's not, these graphic symbols should be used really for teaching language. And I was only using these graphic symbols for visual supports. And, and I think, especially when we serve children with autism, is it really have to think carefully about why we are using these graphic symbols. Are we truly thinking about the words that underlie those symbols? And then finally, how are we teaching these words that the children will learn them, right? So they can develop their language. Exactly, and I think that there's a lot of sometimes um, discussion around what symbol, and I don't know if that symbol looks like that word. I get that a lot when I go into classrooms or I'm working with you know families, and it's not, like you said, it's not about the symbol. I mean, the symbol obviously is important and that graphic is important because we need a visual representation of the language um, so that children who are not able to speak verbally can access that language. But it's about the word, right? And it's and that's where we you know when we're talking with clinicians who might not have experience with AAC or don't know a lot about AAC, you know, you know a lot about language, right? Well, you know how to teach children how to communicate. You know about language development. Um, it's the same thing in a lot of ways 
Um, of course, there's a few differences, but um, you know, teaching the words and in motivating, intrinsically motivating ways, that's how children learn language, right. all children. Yeah, and yeah, and so making sure that they have, and I'm putting this in quotes, but the right words, right? So that you're really thinking about how the children with these complex bodies can learn the concept words that will give them the power to combine language, right? We have too many children who are just using or pointing to or indicating in some way one symbol, one word. You know, our whole modus operandi is to make sure that we're helping them combine words. Words become phrases, words become sentences, whatever, right? Um, so yeah, another point, go ahead, because I had another really important point. That <laughs> think about it, Lisa, think about it. What I was going to ask is, you know, when we're thinking about vocabulary, right, especially for a child who um, is emerging in symbolic understanding, uh, you know, where do we go? Because I think that when you, you were talking about the Facebook groups, right? And I feel like this is the discussion. It's the core versus fringe. Where do you start? Um, you know, how would you answer that question? Mm. So fortunately, there were uh, much greater minds than mine who started thinking about this. Um, and I'm going to go to Lois Bloom and some of the Bloom and Leahy material. But she talks about and has a really good article about it's called Against the Noun Bias. And her point was that if you really lis listened and, and took really good data on what children are talking about as they're developing language, you begin to notice that it's not a bunch of nouns. Yes, we, the children may see the nouns if you have normal vision. Parents talk about names, you know, nouns because you point to them and you name them as part of what you do. Um, I have four kids, so believe me, I know what that is like. Um, but what is it, how, what are the words that children are really using to carry salience, to carry that semantic meaning, right? And most of them are what she termed relational words. Um, and that was one of the places where I got this sort of conceptual relational word concept, but developmental psychologists, educational psychologists um, were really the ones to, to talk about conceptual relational words and that how those words carry so much meaning across contexts, right? And so you think about, gosh, what are those words that I should be teaching this 15-month-old who's, you know, completely nonverbal, she's maybe saying a few sounds. Well, let me, let me go back and I'm gonna look at these conceptual relational words because she's moving her body in such a way or she's manipulating these objects this way. This might be a really good time to teach her the two concepts, same and different. Right. These are, this is a very, very early learned concept. I mean, children in some of the research at three months of age, by kicking their leg, can determine between what is same and different. And really, your brain is set up evolutionary-wise to recognize the familiar versus the unfamiliar, right? Um, the poisonous versus the not poisonous. And so these concepts we don't think about, but they're very early in our receptive understanding. And so for the children who don't experience the world in the same way, it's really important to teach them things like same and different or up and down, right? How are their, how's their body moving um, in and out, um, here and there. You, know, you don't have to have a picture of an object if their eyes are looking at an object or they're gesturing toward an object. The word here can be used much more flexibly than the name of the object. Mm -hmm. And indeed, my, my research across classrooms showed exactly that, that children were using in, in these mutually um, 
in these environments where they were very close socially anyway, so few nouns were used across all, across all classrooms. What was used? Here and there. This and that. It. Okay? So those words, which we call are maybe determiners, but, but they refer to the object that we are mutually referring to, right? And I'm telling you, even the children who had uh, severe, what I'll call severe autism, they, uh, they did not appear to be following gaze. But particularly one of the boys would stand back and he would circle around and he would indirectly watch how these children were moving objects and what they were saying. And then he would go to his communication board and try to understand how that word matched what the students were doing, right? That wasn't like a search and find technique. It was through his indirect observation that he was actually picking up the graphic language and learning those concept words. So, you know, this, this is a really critical point, which, you know, begs to have more research being done, which is, you know, what my plan is. But I think, I thought it was very exciting because it was more evidence based on some evidence done in other fields since the 1970s that speaks to the power of these uh, conceptual relational words. The other thing I think is important is that when we're thinking about communication partners, teachers, paraprofessionals, um, other clinicians, when we're thinking about the way that they facilitate language, most people go straight to nouns, right? That's something that is a natural thing, you know, oh, because most children start off by requesting, right? That's what, where we start um, with the motivating things that children want to do or see or play with or eat. So I think that, you know, our job as clinicians is really to just broaden that perspective. We don't need to focus so much on nouns because that's already happening, right? It's like we need to shift that focus. We need to teach the power of core word vocabulary, um, you know, because naturally the nouns come, right? These things come. Um, I think it's the core words that, you know, teachers and paraprofessionals especially have a really hard time thinking through how would I teach this, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where we can come in as clinicians um, and really dive into that process to integrate into those routines that are already happening and see all the ways that we can use this one concept. Um, And so I think, I think that that's an important thing too, is just, you know, nouns are happening naturally. Well, and I think the, the important point is, I mean, some of the early researchers talked about pre-syntactic language, and we talk about pre-symbolic language. It's pretty much the same thing, right? Before children have enough words to start linking different grammatical functions. So start linking subject, verb, object. Start linking whatever their language is. And so what we're talking about when we talk about where do I begin are these children who are pre-symbolic, right? And, th- and this is critical. You can't stop a child from speaking about a noun once they start having words to refer to these nouns. But if you want to really teach a child who doesn't have speech yet, who doesn't have language yet, the salience is carried on these concept words. And you can always have the pictures or the real objects there to refer to. But what power you give the child to learn the word, the glue words between these nouns, right? Mm-hmm. That, that just gives a lot of cross-contextual power. I love that. Yeah. And I always talk about that glue, right? You can't make sentences with nouns. (laughs) They can be a part of a sentence, but you can't put a bunch of nouns together and have a sentence. 
Right. Exactly. And that's where, especially for children with autism, I feel like that's where it's, I meet so many children. Um, they have huge vocabularies of nouns mm-hmm. and, you know, they might have a few, you know, carrier phrases, I want, or let's play or give me, um, you know, but they truly don't understand in a lot of ways, these concepts. Um, and so they memorize them, they script them and they just, you know, everyone's confused as to why they don't have functional spontaneous language. Um, it's because it's our fault. (laughs) It's, you know, it's it's the fault of speech pathologists. We, I think we've all done, I, I, you know, I I think, and I go back, I always, so I started out doing the search and find techniques or show me this, show me that, um, or point to this and point to that. But you know, children with autism, especially they're, they become very good at maybe following that direction and expecting and predicting what they can point to just to make you go away. Right? Yep. <laughs> so, it's so true. My, this SLP will go away if I just pointed this picture and look away. I have no idea what I'm looking at, but what the heck, you know? Exactly. Uh, I, I just got contingently reinforced for picking the, the picture of a goldfish. Um, yep. <laughs> so, so what are we what are we teaching them? Well, you've got to teach them to to talk about that goldfish, right? Uh, and not just yum or yuck, but you know, uh, put down or take Mm -hmm. out or, you know, go, uh, go away. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's, it's those concept words again, that speak to the relationship among objects that are the most salient that, that are, and, you know, we're still learning this. I got a lot of research to do yet, but I think that's what we all need to take away from this is, uh, is to try to think carefully about, the language that you're teaching, not training. We're not gonna use that word train. I'm not training you to point to that word. I wanna teach you the language to express the relationship and build your language for all those four functions of communication, right? Mm -hmm. And what words do most kids say first? It's no. And how many communication boards do we see, Rachel, that don't even have the word no or not on it? I know. It's one of the first things I teach because kids oftentimes want to not do work, not have something, not eat a certain food. And so it's powerful. And, you know, it's a perfect example of, you know, exactly. Babies start using that word you know, right off the bat, as soon as they start saying words, you know, no is one of the first ones that come out. Um, you know, and so it's just, there's such a disconnect in a lot of ways with what we see with natural language development and for the children that have complex communication needs. And it's because, you know, we are the people in charge of, you know, the vocabulary and the access to that visual language. Right. So I'm really curious, Lisa, what's next for you? What's like on the horizon? Oh, so there's a lot of stuff. Um, I'm having a great time teaching uh, the AEC seminar, which is a mandatory class here at uh, CSUF. I'm developing community partnerships. I mean, one of the things that, I, that I'm really drawn toward is community-engaged scholarship. So before I even came here, I started uh, reaching out to develop partnerships with different agencies. Um, I have something on the burner with Head Start. They have about 25 uh, facilities here in Orange County. I just had a wonderful conversation today with the Fullerton uh, School District, the preschool program, the early childhood program here. They are stoked to start a relationship. So I think there's so much to be done in these preschool classrooms to extend my research and also to help them, right? It's, it's some mutual benefit. You know, I'll be able to teach the teachers. I'll be able to get my students into these classrooms to learn from these um, expert teachers. Um, so that's a real exciting part. Um, I've got some interdisciplinary uh interprofessional practice and education stuff that I'm involved in and then that third tier is the pre-service education for the for the students and to help them learn about uh, AAC 
so yeah, I mean, I, I intend to be here for a long time and, you know, they who knows whether I'll be successful or not, but we'll see. Well, you're already doing amazing work, and I'm so happy that you were able to come on today to share all of your experience, and your dissertation is fantastic. Um, is there a way for people to follow your work or read the research that you've you've done? Yeah, well, they. Um, so I do have a website. It's uh, lisaaac.com. Yeah, and um, people can reach out to me through Cal State University Fullerton. Um, I'm easily accessible from the Communication Disorders Department website. And I'd love to hear from other people in Orange County. You know, I think just building my network here in California, which is huge. Um, is it's really true. Exciting. We got a big state here. Big state. <laughs> well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I'm so excited to hit up your website. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes for everybody to, to view your work. Thank you again for taking thank the time you. out of your day. Um, it was so enlightening um, in a lot of ways, and you're doing really amazing things. So thank we you appreciate it. So Rachel. Of course. So for Talking With Tech, I am Rachel Madel. I will talk to you guys next week. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question, what is communication? You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.